Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Well done. No mistakes. It's been a while as well. Um, although for the listener at home, it has been uh, no time at all. Um, but uh, yes, hello, I'm Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. Simon. And we're back to talk about another George Orwell essay. But first of all, uh, obligatory chat at the beginning. Simon, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. And for the listeners out there, since we last recorded, Lewis had his 30th birthday, which I think is a rather landmark occasion so congratulations old boy thank you very much sir um yes you know i i said this to you earlier but um people ask me what's it like to be 30 and um when i ask them to repeat themselves because i'm going a bit deaf <laughs> um i say i i'm actually you know much happier at 30 than i was at 20 so uh, it's pretty good being 30 i think Well, in the same time period, I had my 41st birthday, so I'm probably well-placed to warn you about what's about to come, but all I can say is my my 30s were were my favourite decade, without a shadow of a doubt, because you've gained a bit of wisdom, you kind of know what you're about by the time you're 30, yet you're still fit, young and healthy to go out and enjoy the things you want to do, I think it's a great decade, so uh, to your health. I hope it's a good one for you. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, ironically, the 30s were also quite a good decade for George Orwell. See what I did there? That was very good. Very good. And the essay we're going to discuss today was written in 1931. Yes, uh, A Hanging, published in the Adelphi, August 1931, then reprinted in The New Savoy in 1946. Now, uh, Simon, when I saw you had chosen this essay, I was quite excited because, arguably, this is George Orwell's most famous essay, wouldn't you say? It's up there. It's top five in most famous essays. And it's just entered my top five favourite essays. Oh, has it knocked any out of position? It's a very loose list. (laughs) Probably top 50 would be a, a, a more apt description, but... I really enjoyed it. What I think we'll do is we'll go through it in no particular order and we'll discuss some themes about it. But is this the earliest essay we've discussed of Orwell? Let me check. It was certainly published before he was George Orwell, published under the name of Eric Blair. Yeah. Um, So today's the Welcome to the Blairian podcast. Uh, Not to be mistaken. Not to be mistaken with the Blairite podcast. Well, speaking of Tony Blair, this podcast will go out later, but at the time we're recording it, we've just pulled out of Afghanistan. It's an almighty disaster. 20 years for absolutely nothing as the country goes back to where it was 20 years ago when we marched in under the orders of a certain Mr. Tony Blair. Yes. So. I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more that it, it kind of feels like we went in, um, things improved for women for a while. Afghanistan arguably became a more democratic country. And you say it's gone back to where it was. It's kind of now worse than where it was because yeah. the people who enjoyed freedoms will now have those freedoms taken away and 
there will be, there have already been reprisals. It's such a mess. And when the Taliban first came into power, we embraced them in the West because of their position against the communists, against the Soviet Union. And I believe we're about to do the same because I think Taliban's threatened by ISIS as well. So I think we're about to sign a deal with the devil once again. But anyway, back to the essay. I think it is the earliest one we've discussed. It is the earliest one. Which is quite interesting. And it's referring to his time in Burma, which is quite naturally a very influential period of his life because it was in his 20s. And he was in Burma from 1922 to 1927. I didn't know he was there for that long. Quite a significant chunk of his young life. Five years. I remember uh, reading up on this, and apparently he was, for most of that time, and up until around the time he decided to leave, he was very much part of the imperial establishment. No one really remembered him as a particular anti-imperialist firebrand. I believe that... Later in the 1930s, some people went to interview local uh, Burmese people about their memories of Orwell. And all that anyone remembered of him was he was quite a good football player for the uh, (laughs) Imperial Police team. I think a good centre forward. Well, at least he wasn't remembered for other things, which could have been a lot more negative. Not even remembered for shooting the elephant, which is probably the second most famous essay. Why do you think, Simon, that this essay is so famous? As we said, it's very early in his career. And it, it kind of, when you compare this with a lot of the later essays... It's much more like a story, isn't it? It's like a short story rather than a, an well, essay. Well, that's something I'd like to talk about after we've talk, you know, gone through the essay about the fictional or non-fictional element of this essay. First of all, it's about him witnessing a man being hanged, sentenced to death and hanged. So that's quite a significant thing to be writing about in the first person, having witnessed a hanging Secondly, I think a lot of people make a big deal of it because of his connection, and he's writing about his experience as a member of the imperial establishment. And this is a man who, when he became famous, was famous for being anti-imperialist and what it stood for. Yes, this essay is definitely a comment on capital punishment, obviously, as you would expect from an essay called A Hanging. But it's also a comment on imperialism, the way imperialism uh, impinges on the lives of the colonised peoples. Uh, I think there's also, I'd really like to discuss the way it subtly hints at the structures of power within imperialism, because it's not simply white people versus indigenous people. There's a whole uh, structure of power hinted at, Mm. I think, in the essay. Um, Could I just read this quote? Uh, I recently bought this very good book, George Orwell Illustrated, um, by David Smith and illustrated by Mike Mosher. And there's a couple of quotes here. Was he in the bee, no? I hear he never uh, comes (laughs) out of his pit. Um, (laughs) So there's a couple of quotes here about um, George Orwell's witnessing of executions. Apparently George Orwell later commented, I watched a man hanged once. It seemed to me worse 
than a thousand murders. So uh, there's the... I think that's from our road to Wigan Pier, that quote. Right, which you gave me which for I my birthday. Which I gave you for your birthday, oh. so you'll be able to validate that or not. But, yeah. um, so there you have the comment on, on capital punishment. And then summing up this essay's attitude towards imperialism, George Orwell later wrote, maybe in Wigan Pier too, I should expect to find that even in England, many policemen, judges, prison warders and the like are haunted by a secret horror of what they do. But in Burma, it was a double oppression that we were committing. Not only were we hanging people and putting them in jail and so forth, we were doing it in the capacity of unwanted foreign invaders. Now, that struck me because the man who's hanged in the essay, we never found out what he did. Yeah. There's no commentary on whether he was guilty, whether he might have... Uh, Which been... is genius on Orwell's yes. part, I think, in heightening the senses of the essay, it's, not stay, keeping it ambiguous. It's just about the bare humanity yeah. of this man who, I, I love, at one point Orwell mentions, you know, he's a living man yeah. right up until the moment he drops to the end of the rope. Do, do you find, Lewis, that we're often talking about Orwell's take on society, but this was the essay where he most goes into depth and brilliantly goes into depth on an individual's thinking mm. about how we react as an individual to certain things. Well, that's the tension in Orwell, isn't it? Because he was, uh, he's sometimes been descri described as a, a Tory anarchist or a libertarian socialist. There was always a tension in, in his political views and in his writing between the rights of the individual and the need for uh, combination the need for uh, cooperation within society and for working as a group yeah. and, and all of that. Right, jumping into the essay, at the very beginning when he's describing the scene of this man, he calls him a, a brown man. Now, the council culture crew would be jumping on that straight away, but he's done it deliberately, hasn't he? Calling him the brown man. He's not being racist. He's just leaving the reader in no doubt as to the status of the man racially, socially, and in this case, judicially, in the scenario. He's painting a picture and he's done it deliberately. And I think it's very cleverly done. Going back to what I said about structures of imperial power, not long after he mentions this man uh, who's been condemned to death, he then mentions how six tall Indian warders yeah. were guarding him and getting him ready for the gallows. So um, it then Orwell very quickly hints at how the way that the empire worked was it involved the co-opting of certain groups into the imperial power structure. Yeah. So this it's isn't... The irony like, of empire, mm, isn't it? This isn't uh, six white men hustling this man to his death. It involves... Uh, his own. Yes. Uh, and the, we, we later find out, or we find out at the same time, actually, that this man is a Hindu as well. And he never mentions it, but I do wonder if the warders were Hindus or maybe Sikhs. I think he says Dra Dra Dravidian. Well, he it? later goes on to mention the head jailer is a Dravidian, which yeah. I believe is uh, an ethnic group from the south from of the India. South, yeah. So again, we get this sense of how uh, people were moved around within the empire. But also the Brit within India, 
the British Empire played upon those different groups. So a Dravidian would be guarding a Hindi, a Hindi would be guarding a Punjabi or a Muslim, etc., etc. They played them off against each other. Yes, and, and like I said, um, Sikhs, I believe, were kind of quite high up in the imperial yeah. hierarchy, weren't they? And they were often they often had very important roles in the British military. So I do wonder if these uh, men might have, who these warders might have been Sikhs. But in 1922, had you gone to Kenya, Hong Kong? Burma, or anywhere in the British Empire, the policemen would likely have been from the subcontinent. Mm. Yet the commander would have been a white man. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really interesting. Do you know what it reminded me of, Lewis? This forceful co-opting against your own kind is, I mean, this is quite strong, but the, the, the Holocaust. Yes. How the prison guards in the concentration camps would make Jews, give them a higher position and make them do the policing. Well, yes, capos uh, mm. and capos were often also uh, criminals who had been um, given these positions of power. Uh, I watched the film Schindler's List uh, not so long ago. Me and, too, this summer I um, watched it. Very early on, you see how some members of the Jewish community in Krakow um, become ghetto policemen because it's uh, seen as a kind of safer position to be in. And we criticise them now, but well, when you're in a battle for survival, who can comment on what people are capable of doing? True. Lewis, what do you think of the language in this essay? How do you mean the language? What Stylistically, aspect? artistically. I, I think, think it's beautiful. Yes, I think it's very plain. Like I say, I think it's it's plain, but there's a kind of poetry to it. That first sentence, it was in Burma, a sodden morning of the rains. You know, I, I might have mentioned before how much I love Somerset Maugham, who was a, a writer of short stories mostly about the British Empire. That seems like something straight out of Somerset Maugham to Well, me. what he's done there all well by mentioning it was a sodden morning in the rains he's setting the essay up for the most poignant part that comes later with the puddle. So it's very cleverly done. And I reckon this essay was written, rewritten, restructured again and again, as if he was writing prose. So I think it's brilliant. I mean, he says near the beginning of the essay about the, the condemned man, but he stood quite unresisting, yielding his arms limply to the ropes as though he hardly noticed what was happening. So, do you think this man has accepted his fate? Or has the resistance just been beaten out of him? What would be your guess? Well, the way that Orwell writes about him, he seems very accepting, or at least he seems um, very docile. Um, the only time you hear about resistance, or any kind of even fear, um, is when later on the young Eurasian man mentions how um, when the prisoner heard that his appeal had failed, he uh, wet himself. Yeah. Um, that's the only time you ever hear of this man's fear of being hanged. Even when he's, uh, that incredibly powerful moment 
when he's um, calling out on his god, yeah. uh, Rama, I believe. I'm not very up on Hindu, uh, yeah. on the Hindu religion, but even when he's calling out on his god, uh, Orwell points out that it's more like a, it's not a pleading. It's more just something that has to be done before preparation he dies. For, for the afterlife. Mm. So then, as the prisoners being escorted to the place where he he will be hanged. The army doctor, the white army doctor, shouts out, For God's sake, hurry up, Francis. The man ought to have been dead by this time. Aren't you ready yet? How does this show the, the nature of the British Empire, that the orderly nature of the empire and how transactional it was to take a man's life? Well, the whole... That the men were late for breakfast, we later find out. Yes, and I believe that, yes, the the army doctor who's also the superintendent of the prison he very tellingly says the prisoners can't get their breakfast till this job's over exactly this is a job uh, these men are just doing their job um you know what this really put me in mind of we did an episode about kipling and all those opinion of kipling and you started that episode by pointing out the many parallels in the career lives and careers of mm-hmm. kipling and orwell and I think this is one of the reasons Orwell liked Kipling so much, is because both writers wanted to show the readers back home the dirty work of empire. Yeah. But the main difference was, for Kipling, it was, this is a dirty job, someone's got to do it. But by Orwell's time, Orwell is saying, this is a dirty job, so why are we doing it? Yeah, I think that's a very well put um, expression of the dichotomy between Kipling and, and Orwell. Yeah, very well put. What did you make of the passage of the dog that breaking is into the courtyard and holding everything up? I really wanted to ask you about because there, there's again a very telling moment where uh, Orwell. Pr- Orwell prefaces the arrival of this dog in the execution yard with. A dreadful thing had happened. Now, what could be more dreadful than leading a man to his death? A dreadful thing had happened. A dog, come goodness knows whence, had appeared in the yard. Um, For me, and I'd love to hear your opinion of it, this dog doesn't understand what's going on, or at least it doesn't understand until it's all over. Because he mentions how it goes to the Mm. corner and whimpers. Mm. It walks around the back of the gallows. Yeah. I think this passage was put in to magnify the loss of life, the, the senselessness of this. The dog and is an innocent bystander. The dog doesn't understand about empire and systems yeah. of power and human justice. And, and he runs up to the condemned man and licks him on the face. The only creature showing this man any dignity or any sense of parity is the dog that's broken into the courtyard. I doubt this happened. Yes. It seems very convenient. But like we always say with Orwell, I don't care about the concrete truth. The metaphor of what he's saying is more important. And I think it was a very poignant. And then following the passage with the dog, I think is the the centerpiece of the essay. And to quote the essay, he says, And once, in spite of the men who gripped him by each shoulder, he stepped slightly aside to avoid a puddle 
on the path. Why do you think, in, in your opinion, that is such a poignant sentence in the essay? I think it's the most, sen most famous sentence from this essay. Well, I think it's there to back up Orwell's uh, essentially anti-death penalty message here, that this man is alive, uh, yeah. there is no reason for him, no uh, medical uh, reason for him to die. His death has been ordained by, assist by systems of power. Um, and his stepping away from the puddle just emphasises his continuing life right up until the time he's uh, put into the noose. Yeah, well put. I totally agree with you. Like Even walking to his death, his human natural instinct is to avoid the, the puddle and get his feet wet. You know, I think this... This has the impact on Orwell of realising a perfectly healthy body was about to be taken from this earth. But, and it just seems ridiculous to him, doesn't it? I mean, I think the panic, the panicked need to occupy the mind to stop it from fixating on the dreaded realisation of impending death. So... To control his panic, this man must just be focusing on every millisecond of life that's going through him. So that puddle before him becomes an entire episode within his life to focus on, rather than thinking directly about the death that's about to happen. And I think Orwell con conveys it so well. Like Even as a bystander, rather than a condemned man, I think he conveys that really well, that momentary sensory feeling of how it must be to die or knowing that your death is coming. Now, something I should mention here in doing my research in is that this episode is remarkably... You know, he was a fan of Tolstoy. We'll do that essay mm. in the future. So the moment where the condemned man steps slightly aside to avoid a puddle on the path appears to have been lifted from... War and Peace. Really? I'm yeah, actually reading Tolstoy. that at the moment. I haven't... Um... So, in Tolstoy's novel, War and Peace, when you get to it, Wood, Wood, the character reminds us, Pierre witnesses a man being executed and observes that just before death, the condemned man adjusts the blindfold at the back of his head because it's a little bit too tight. I know that bit because I watched the very good um, adaption of War. Did you see that adaption of War and Peace? They BBC see one with yeah. Paul Dano. It was very good. Um, yeah. I remember the bit, but they, I don't think they put in that bit with the the blindfold. But so it seems to have because knowing that Orwell is really into Tolstoy, the the parallels seem to be a bit too uncanny for it to have not been. But again, like I said, don't, I don't mind that with Orwell. Do you think this affects the um, the truthfulness of the essay or its impact? The fact that I mean, it is. I, I mentioned before that it's a bit like a sh more like a short story than a work of journalism. Um, and of course, we know that not all journalism is factual, and <laughs> um, journalism is probably more of an art generally than. Yeah than anything. But do you think that this fact that there is a bit of invention in there, probably the dog, the, the puddle, 
Do you think that affects its impact at all? Not at all. Like I said, it doesn't bother me because why has he written this essay? Because he wants the readers of Adelphi to stare at imperialism in the face and question it. So he... Something's happened to him and he's thrown a bit of salt and pepper onto it to, to get the message. Because we're both human beings that live a life. Most of life is mundane. And it wouldn't put across a message that we wanted to. The, the hangman, the man who does the deed, is a fellow prisoner. Again, going back to what we were talking about, the capos and the concentration camps. None of them are actually having to do the final deed. They get another prisoner to do it. Which is strange um, as well, because in Britain, uh, that wasn't the case. There were professional hangmen, uh, the most famous of whom was Albert Pierpoint. I don't know. Have you seen the film based on his life? Is it by... Ken Loach or someone Well, like it's that. got one of those Ken Loach regulars. It's got Timothy Spall in it. Maybe that's why I thought so. Um, but I haven't it, seen it's it. It's a good film. It's a good film. Um, and uh, so they had professional hangmen in Britain, but it seems out in the colonies it was just uh, another case of uh, co-opt someone yeah. into, into doing the dirty business. And then you mentioned that what, before, before and whilst he's having his uh, hood put on his head, he's chanting Rama Rama to, to his God. And Orwell describes this as unbearable to hear. And the other Indian guards all went pale upon hearing it. Do you think that's a sense of guilt or a realisation of what this man's about to have done to him? Well, I think, I personally, I thought it was the realisation because I think right up until that point, they're all running on adrenaline, as is the man who's about to be hanged, presumably. But then you have this awful weight. And this is another interesting difference between the way hangings were conducted in Britain and the way they seem to have been conducted in the colonies. Because in Britain, uh, again, if you watch the film Pierpoint, you'll, you'll see this, hangings were supposed to be a fine art. And the hangman particularly Pierpoint, was always trying to reduce the amount of time between the condemned man leaving his cell and dangling on the end of the rope. And Pierpoint got it down to 12 seconds. And his reasoning was that that it was to stop the man suffering too much. Invariably, it was a man. I I don't think there there were any women hanged between the 20s and the 50s. Um, But... uh, Whereas it seems, at least according to Orwell, uh, when a prisoner is doing this to another prisoner, it's not so much a fine art and there's this horrible weight. And once the man's dead, they're trying to ease themselves with conversation. One of them mentions how sometimes, how that one in particular was a very swift death, but sometimes the doctor had to get down there and pull on the man's legs to help speed it along what did you think of because they're they're laughing about that yeah and they're laughing about the young eurasian man boasting about his european style cigarette case and they're laughing about how this man wet himself when he heard that his appeal had failed so do you think this laughter is basically them you know, it's whistling in the dark. It's They've all been through what is actually quite a horrible experience. Yeah. 
Um, they're all in deep shock, and all they can do is laugh. Well, according to my father and brother, who both served in the army, one of the reasons for the such intense banter you get in the military is for that. It's to distract from the things you've seen or done. And it's a way of getting your mind away to a better place, otherwise you'll just be completely consumed by it. And ha have you been to funerals or wakes? Yes. I I've always found when I've been to them that they've been quite good-humoured. People cracking jokes, having a drink. And I think it is that need for us to to make light of something that's just happened, which was unpleasant. And that's what they're doing here, isn't it? They're, this is 1920s banter, joking about how he pissed himself and stuff like that so they can all have a laugh and move on as though it never happened. And I think the final line of the essay is, and the dead man... Was a hundred yards away. Was a hundred yards away as we all laughed, realising how obscene, obscene it is. But it's human nature, I believe. What do you think about the depiction of the non-European... Uh, I don't want to say characters, but actors in this uh, grim drama, because it struck me that, you know, Orwell is, he's in this, but he's a bystander. Yeah. Never at any point does he say, I was the subdivisional commander and I was there to do this. He he is like a camera. He's just there recording it. He, he, he as much as he does is, is uh, listen to the guy talking about his cigarette case. The... We've already mentioned how the superintendent, he says a few cold things about getting the job done and he, he pokes the man with a stick to check that he's dead. However, I feel that the, um, you know, quote-unquote native characters, the Dravidian, the Dravidian jailer, the young Eurasian man, uh, I feel that they kind of come out of this worse than the European characters. Do you think that's the case? I don't know if he's deliberately made, tried to portray them as worse. I think he's tried to portray them more pitifully. As if to say, what on earth are this lot having to be here for doing all this? And how must it affect them? You know, they're not the ones that have marched halfway across the world to exploit these people and hang them. And... They're the ones that needed humour even more when it came to it. And I felt he does pity them. He talks about how all their pace, faces go pale and they all look down at the earth as it happens. So, yeah, I don't think he's deliberately trying to portray them any worse. I think it's just about pity. I felt kind of a bit differently from you. I felt that in order to underline the, the way that colonialism... And imperialism dehumanizes people. I mean, this, 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 the whole essay is about dehumanization. Literally, in the case of the man who is hanged, he goes from being a living human being to being a, a corpse. He, he is de literally dehumanized. Being laughed at. And yes. I think that's where the humor come, coming in is very but I think important to that. Also, the men laughing are dehumanized themselves because yeah. they are treating what is this horrible event with such levity um, and they are denying their natural human feelings of revulsion and fear and horror. Um, but I feel that the Eurasian boy who talks about his fancy European cigarette case and the, uh, uh, the jailer, the Dravidian jailer, who uh, talks about his uh, 
difficulty when the prisoners kick and scream and hold on to the bars. And then uh, this bit, you know, about the Burmese magistrate who's chuckling at the idea of a, a hanged man having to have his legs pulled. I feel that Orwell is kind of making these characters, he's trying to involve them in the unpleasantness because he wants to point out how imperialism as a system soaks through all of the society and taints everything and every yeah. level and it, it really made it me dehumanizes think of, everything it touches mm, it really made me think of the you've basically got two views of imperialism haven't you you've got the nationalist view and the socialist view the nationalist view and, and you have studied this a bit more than me so correct me if i'm wrong but the nationalist view of imperialism is that these other people come into our country which was great beforehand, and ruin it, and oppress everyone, and uh, destroy our culture. And the socialist view of imperialism, as I see it, is that these people come from elsewhere, and they work on the higher levels of society, and they co-opt these various groups, they co-opt uh, the magistrates, they co-opt the rich people and they incorporate them into the imperial system and imperialism becomes just an extension of capitalist oppression yeah. and i feel that in the world after the after decolonization the nationalist myth of colonialism became the acceptable myth because you know most countries wanted to remain capitalist but you talk because well, we were fighting against the Soviet Union in the Cold mm -hmm, War, mm -hmm. so we didn't want to align our history of what we were accusing the, the Soviet Union of doing in its expansion into Eastern Europe and Afghanistan. So, but I feel that Orwell, as a socialist, is showing how the structures of imperialism have seeped into society in yeah. Burma, and. He's by by showing the callousness of the Burmese judge and the Eurasian boy and the the Dravidian jailer by showing their callousness, he's um, he's supporting the socialist view of imperialism, yeah. which is it's a structure of power that comes from capitalism. Am I am I just no? I think you're dead right with that, and how the the working man has been oppressed by this power structure coming from above. And they've been dehumanized by the class system. So yeah, I think you're spot on with that. And it's it's a theme throughout all of his musings on empire, is how it's all about power. It's all about class structure. So that's the essay done. The man's dead. Lewis, there's a lot of debate as to whether this was a real event or an Orwellian metaphor for something he wanted to portray. What's your instinct tell you? Well, my instinct tells me that in the end it, it doesn't matter because this isn't supposed to be a piece of reportage. It's supposed to be an essay about, about imperialism, about the wrongness of going into other people's countries and insinuating yourself into their structures of power and, uh, and about the horror of taking a human life in cold blood yeah um what i'd like to ask you though simon is is this essay really about capital punishment 
Or is it more about imperialism? It's about imperialism and capital punishment in the same way as he used the pith helmet to, to decry imperialism. He's using capital punishment to decry imperialism. And this is a more famous essay because it has a bigger impact because a man hanging to death is more impactful than a helmet made out of grass. He was very vague about this event. He told some people close to him, oh, it's just a story. But as you quoted earlier on in the Road to Wigan Pier, he did mention he witnessed a hanging. And I believe he witnessed a hanging. Because at the time, every time there was a hanging, there had to be police officers present. And they often got the cadets to be the ones who had to go and do it, which is what he was throughout his time in Burma. It was often an initiation for new people into the country as well. For the first couple of years, right, go and do the hanging duty, make sure, you know, write down, sign off, it all happened, went as according to plan. So I believed he witnessed a hanging. I doubt events occurred as he's described them in the essay, but I'm completely with you on this one. I don't care. It doesn't matter. This could be a work. This could be a short story. It could be a work of fiction. It still has the same message. Of course, if it's true, people maybe can relate to it a bit better. But um, yeah, I believe this essay is a mix of different sensations, different feelings, and different experiences that Orwell experienced throughout his five years in Burma amalgamated into one story. So let's not forget he was very embarrassed about his association with empire and imperialism. So later in his life it might have been more convenient for him to say it was just a story. Therefore this could have happened but he was a bit embarrassed about it and the attention this essay got. Because when he's this published in the, in the Adelphi he probably expected a a hundred people throughout the world to read this essay, not knowing that it, there would be podcasts done about it in a hundred years later. Also, um, getting on to whether it's more about imperialism or capital punishment, um, Orwell, as far as I know, didn't really ever throw his weight behind campaigning against capital punishment. And I think, you know, eventually we're going to get on to one of his post-war essays, which might be an as I please, I'm not sure, but I seem to remember he wrote an essay around the time of the Nuremberg war crimes trials in which he basically says that he thinks in this case capital punishment is fair enough. Um, so we'll, I think we'll probably return to the theme of Orwell okay. and capital punishment at some point. How about you, Lewis? Are you pro-capital punishment? Well, this is something I wanted to talk to you about because... I am broadly against the taking of human life in cold blood. Um, and I think that the chances of executing the wrong person, there's always that chance there. One, if 1% if of people executed are innocent, that's 1% too many. Um, However, I do sometimes wonder if I'm a bit of a hypocrite because, again, I just mentioned the Nuremberg war crimes trials. It's, by the way, 75 years since those trials started. Um, and when it comes to those war crimes trials, both in Europe and the Far East, 
I think that capital punishment was the only necessary outcome there. Really? What, what do you think? I, I'm anti-capital punishment. Um, even in that situation, you know, I'd have locked them away for life. Even considering that a lot of those who were locked away were let out after about 10 years. Well, that's a whole different judicial hurdle you have to come over. I, I mean, I'm speaking from a moralistic or ethical standpoint. You know, I'd have locked them away, throwing away the key to speak. Um, yeah, I don't believe in capital punishment. I don't ever believe in taking a life in vengeance of something they've done. Often, it's often a, a way out for these people. Look at Goering, he committed suicide before he could be put in prison. Put, what, what he thought he could have been put in prison forever. It's, it's yeah, I, I've just always been anti-capital punishment. I can't ever see why we need to do it. Take a human life. And where, where do you draw the line well, between yes. somebody who deserves to die and somebody who doesn't? Exactly. Eichmann, who is responsible for thousands of deaths of Jews, or a man who murders a family in cold blood? I, I don't know where you draw the line. Well, that's why I feel so conflicted, because again, whereas I'm fine with the executions that took place after the war crimes trials, when it comes to people being executed for modern genocide... I'm not so sure, and I don't know why. Yeah. Maybe it's because one is further in the past. Like the and Bosnian genocide. Yes. Do you want to hang all the people involved in that? Well, I see, that's the thing. I, I can't There's really... There's an awful lot of genocide around the mm. world. Well, it hasn't stopped. It doesn't get certainly. reported on. Are we just going to hang everyone that ever... But um, the have you... Of course, you and I are living in a country where people are still hanged every yeah. year. Have you ever had a chat with a, a Japanese person about capital punishment? Do you know what? I haven't. We should have invited somebody on. I mean, I think it's a, a theme that's going to come up in future essays. Mm. We can maybe invite one of our Japanese friends to come on the podcast and mm -hmm. get their opinion. Um, it's In Japan, um, it's kind of hard to argue. You can only argue in a moral sense against capital punishment in Japan because... In Japan, people can only be executed for mass murder and terrorism, and it generally uh, only happens... And sushi pizza. <laughs> and, and wearing your shoes in the house. Yeah. Um, mass murder, terrorism, and it generally only... People are only executed in Japan when it's a very safe conviction and there, you know, yeah. there are witnesses to them stabbing 10 people. And they quite often sit in jail for 20 years before mm. it happened, mm -hmm. don't they? Um, like, uh, just a couple of years ago, the people responsible for the subway attacks yeah. were, were executed. Um, did you hear about the uh, Yakuza boss who got sentenced to death? Just a week or two ago. I didn't. Very... What are going to do about all the politicians that were probably in cahoots with them? Well, I'll talk to you about that when we've stopped recording. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Maybe best we don't on the podcast, yeah. Very unusual case, though, uh, because he wasn't guilty of... He, he didn't actually do anything with his own hands. He, he, he was, he's basically been condemned to death for conspiracy to murder. Um, and he's the only... Yakuza boss who's ever been uh, sentenced to death. I very much doubt it will actually happen. I think periodically they have to appear to be cracking down on the Yakuza, don't they? 
so everyone will forget the fact that these people like own half of Tokyo's entertainment industry and police and politicians are apparently can I state that apparently in their pockets but anyway to, to end the podcast I'd like to ask you who do you think the condemned man was what oh, do you think God, he did? I'm, I'm glad you didn't say who do you think should be hanged um uh, <laughs> um you know what I, I don't want to know because yeah. uh, and I don't want to speculate because uh, I think as we pointed out at the beginning it is a pivotal part of the essay that we just look on him as a human being who is bound to die rather than I, I mean I don't think you know it, it would have been it wouldn't have been a good essay if Orwell had portrayed him as some brave freedom fighter who had been well uh, having done a bit of research from a lot of historian historians that have gone into this essay i wish i hadn't because the consensus is this wasn't a man who was just a common thief or committed a murder because they wouldn't have had six guards with them apparently they only had that many guards with people who were revolutionaries. Mm. By that, I mean people who wanted Burmese independence and the British Empire out. And that makes me feel a whole lot worse about the, the essay well, and what it's meant to be saying about empire. It's quite possible that this man had... I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean he'd been planting bombs or even that he had killed a European what would be probably more likely is that he had killed a Burmese magistrate yeah. uh, or some per, some uh, non-European person involved in the stru structures of power and, and apparently the god he chanced at the end and the manner in which he did it indicates that he was almost proud of his impending death and doesn't regret what he did for that to be happening as opposed to had he killed his wife and children and he would be pleading for forgiveness. Apparently it was the latter, which stacks up towards him most probably being involved in some kind of anti-imperial independence movement. But why would Orwell not mention that? Is it simply that that would be a step too far and people would just say this, so. is, this is polemical nonsense? Or? Yeah, I think step too far. Perhaps he didn't know. Perhaps he was just there as an observer. Imagine if he did know. Imagine the guilt that someone like Orwell would carry with him. Perhaps the guilt was too much in writing about this. It was a bit, we say, he kind of, kind of discarded this essay later on in his life in the 40s because he was embarrassed about his connections to empire and how he's written this essay in the first person. So maybe at the time of writing, had he known that, it would have been a bit too much, his association, and people wouldn't have been able to have seen past that. Well, on that note, I wish everybody that's listening well, <laughs> please, please, if you do listen to this podcast at night, don't go into your bed thinking of a hanging, literally. Um, <laughs> maybe watch something a bit funnier before you <laughs> put your head on the pillow. But it's important for us to talk about this. It's a very famous Orwell essay. Yes, it's one of the big ones. I'm glad we got on to it this yeah. week. First one after our summer break. Although for the people listening to this, it, there'll be about five <laughs> released before this is released yes. after the summer break. So. Sorry, everyone. But, uh, you know, mm. Simon and I just do this for fun, really. So We, we chrono chronologically 
confuse you on purpose, who just focus on the themes as opposed to the timing of things. And uh, I've never claimed production values to be our strong point on this podcast. It's all. So what is our strong point on <laughs> this podcast? <laughs> We're not even drinking alcohol today, yes, which is uh, our usual strong yes. point. We're, yes, thank you for listening to or- Orwellian Sober for Two Podcasts yeah. straight. <laughs> and how depressing was it with us without us drinking? I, I tell you, though, I'm going to have to do a lot less editing on this one. Anyway, say your thing. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. And as we always like to say, Orwell that ends well. Bye-bye.